Welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. I'm your aptly named host of your favorite hebdomadal podcast. Oh, I'm glad you're with me. I'd be hit with Andreostrongulus cantonensis if you infected me with the idea that you missed this week's show. You hear that cutting in the background, by the way? Hmm, having a little work done outside. Gender Inclusivity 101. Our 21 NTC coverage continues with a convo that started out talking about gender-inclusive data and includes a lot of best practices around that, but it broadened to a primer on inclusivity generally. It's 2021. It's time to address your constituents as they'd like to be addressed. My guest is Jude Scheimer from the Center for Popular Democracy. And ethical representation in your communications. Calliope Glaros urges you to authentically represent your issues as well as preserve the dignity of those affected by them. She shares five actions to help you tell more ethical and equitable stories. She's principal of Philanthropy Without Borders, and this is also part of our 21 NTC coverage. On Tony's Take Two, how are you doing? Plus, podcast pleasantries. We're sponsored by Turn2 Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission. Turn-2.co. Here is Gender Inclusivity 101. Welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio coverage of 21NTC, the 2021 Nonprofit Technology Conference. We're sponsored at 21NTC by Turn2 Communications turn-2.co. My guest right now is Jude Scheimer. They are CRM manager at the Center for Popular Democracy. Jude, welcome to Nonprofit Radio. Hello, thank you for having me. Absolutely, my pleasure. Your session is respect your donors with gender inclusive data. And your claim, well, I'm not, I'm not sounding, I don't, mean to sound, uh, I don't mean to sound skeptical of it. No, you say that we can improve relationships and, and grow our base by being more cautious or using gender inclusive data practices better. Yes. So just as an overview, what are we not getting right? <laughs> sure. So this is a particular interest of mine because I'm trans and non-binary and uh, I have a lot of experiences um, especially filling in forms, filling in uh, donation forms for nonprofits, where um, I started my session at NTC with an anecdote where I was trying to donate to an organization that I cared a lot about. And they had a salutation field on their donation form that was required, and it didn't have any, any gender neutral option except for doctor. <laughs> um, and I, I never understand why any donation form would require that. Like why? It just, it makes no sense to me. Uh, And I actually reached out to this organization and asked if they could update their form. Um, And at the time I already was working for a company um, that among other things uh, was a, a donation, an online donation platform for nonprofits. And so I built a lot of donation forms um, and so I knew what was possible. Yeah, exactly. You, you do not have to have a required salutation field. Required, right, right. Yeah. It didn't work. They, they, 
the person who, who I emailed with actually was really sympathetic and seemed uh, really eager to do it and then said that they tried and it broke their form <laughs> and that therefore they, they couldn't do it. And so I didn't donate to the org and they didn't get my donation. Yeah. You could have offered uh, technical assistance probably yeah. to help them to fix their broken form. All right. Yeah. Um, then it becomes way, a question should... of free labor. Yeah, no, you shouldn't have to do that. No, I'm just throwing yeah. it um, By the way, you may hear a little banging in the background. I'm having some floor work done. So. Oh, well, congrats. Or cutting right. Thank you. Um, <laughs> replacing carpet with uh, uh, LVP, this planking, mm. this vinyl planking that is looks doesn't look like 1960s vinyl yeah um, so it's a little noisy but that's that's you might hear that in the background um yeah all right so i mean let's start with the most basic you know why would they need to require a salutation i mean what, I, do they have a rationale for that or do you see a, a, a rationale that you you don't agree with probably but yeah an argument well, for it yeah i've talked to a lot of nonprofits who either do require salutations salutation on their forms or wanted to require salutation on your forms. Um, again, the, the, the clients that I was working at with the time and the platform that I was supporting um, did not require salutation and, uh, and we had a policy against it. Um, and you didn't even have to have salutation on the form, but we had clients who would request that it be required. And I talked to several about it and it really came down to this myth that donors want to be addressed by their salutation all the time. Like universally, that's just a thing that donors want. And therefore we need to ask for it because if we don't know their salutation, we're not going to be able to, to write it on their acknowledgement letter and they're going to be upset and they're going to feel disrespected and, and they won't want to donate anymore. And I have never actually, like no one was able to actually give me some kind of evidence that this is true. Like no one had told me a story of like, oh, we had a donor and we forgot to use their salutation and they were really upset and they wouldn't donate anymore. Like that, does that ever actually happen? And if it does, that sounds like the donor's problem. <laughs> like, uh, you know, it, there are, you can find other donors if you have, you know, one odd one who insists on being referred to it, not only insists on, on having their salutation used, but, but having it asked up, up front. And the idea that it should be required, like it, at least just making it optional gives people the opportunity to put it in if they want to be addressed by it. And then no one else has to, but required makes no sense to me. All right. So let's broaden this. And, uh, go go to what you know what is what what else is out there that we should be sensitive to uh, besides salutation you know what sure i guess what is gender data sure so um there's the actual gender field um so you know male female any other options of which there are actually many more um mm -hmm. and there also uh is uh pronoun which, and I also want to be clear, like salutation is not analogous to gender and pronoun is not analogous to gender. So someone may uh, identify as male, but use they, them pronouns um, because pronoun usage is very personal. Um, but uh, 
But all of these things relate to the concept of gender. So when I talk about gender data, I'm talking about all of the various fields that people associate with gender. So, um, so yeah, there's salutation, there's pronoun, there's the actual gender field. And then there's also sex, which I address in my, um, in my presentation as being totally irrelevant to this conversation. When we're talking about donors, donor data, there is no justification whatsoever to ask for or know the sex of your donor, meaning the sex they were assigned at birth. It's a complete yeah. non-issue. So you can just drop it off the list. Um, with gender itself, the gender field, this one is, this one is, is, is very interesting. So I, multiple times I've seen forms that ask for gender uh, because they want to like put a t-shirt in someone's membership package and want to know whether to include a, a, a men's or a woman's t-shirt. But there's no explanation of that. They don't ask for like t-shirt style. They just ask for gender, male or female. <laughs> right, but no size. Right. So yeah. Okay. So that, that justification seems kind of thin. Yeah, exactly. Be kind. That that's a thin. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, so that's an example, and that's one that I've seen on on donation or or at least membership forms. Uh, and then also, though, there are other reasons why a nonprofit might want to ask for gender, less so because of um, like a just a donation situation, but maybe because they're accepting some kind of um, application uh, or submission. Uh, maybe around their programming, um, maybe they're going to have an event uh, and they want to have performers or panelists. And that actually is a really good justification for asking for gender to ensure equity, um, to make sure that you don't end up with, you know, an all male or all cisgender panel uh, or, you know, artists in your new works programming, things like that. Um, and in that case, there are best practices for how to ask for gender. Um, Okay, we're gonna we'll, we'll get to that. We'll yeah. Get, okay. Cool. We definitely want to <laughs> we'll get ahead of it. Yeah. No, we want to get to the best practice. Yeah. I'm just trying to set the set the field for what we're what it is we're we're, we're talking about. Sure. Um, sure. Can I? Uh, this is maybe a little part. Well, it's not so part. But I want you to explain your your feelings around something when when someone doesn't refer to you uh, as they they or them, but says he or she. Uh, how, how does that feel? I'm not asking you to speak for the entire, you know, yeah. the entire community. Uh, but how does it feel to you when someone mis, mis, misidentifies you? That's a great question. For me personally, um, it feels confusing and it, it feels like being called the wrong name repeatedly. <laughs> um, okay, that's it, a good analogy because we, yeah. we all know how that feels, you know. Yeah, people, exactly. Oh, I thought you said Tom. You know, I've heard a few times. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so for me, it, it, I don't have a particularly strong emotional reaction. It's just incorrect. It's just like, oh, no, that's, that's wrong. That doesn't fit. Uh, that is my unique experience. For, for other trans people, it can be really, really un unpleasant and traumatic. Um, it also depends on how it's done. Because if someone does it by accident, you know, they slip up or they, like, I haven't had an opportunity to tell them my pronoun and they just assume that feels different from when someone has been told repeatedly and they are persistently using the wrong pronoun. Um, and yeah, well, yeah. Right. told repeatedly and, and consistently doing it wrong is yeah. almost like harassment. 
Yeah, it I don't is. Know if it's the legal definition of harassment. But yeah, it's, it's harassing to you, uh, maybe in a non-legal way, whatever. Um, yeah. All right. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. And um, actually, there's something I do want to add to that, which is that there are for there's sort of a scale of of disrespect or lack of respect for trans people as far as impact. And it, it, it's different for, for different people. So for me, things like being called the wrong pronoun by someone who's only just met me or being called ma'am by a server uh, or, or, you know, having to confront like a restrictive gender field on a form, these things really annoy me. But I also have significantly more traumatic experiences like being yelled at to leave my gym locker room or having really unpleasant experiences at the OBGYN. And these may seem different, but for me, they're all part of the same kind of miasma. <laughs> like, like they all come together to create an experience. And so when, when someone can help mitigate those things that seem smaller, like a form, a form field or like, a, or like a, a brief misgendering, briefly using the wrong pronoun, it makes such a big difference. It really does. Um, and I, I think that's important to talk about. Yeah, and I, I, I'm sorry that you, you need to have the, the small like sort of corrections because the, the, uh, the affronts you know, shouldn't be there. Yeah. But it sounds like, you know, so it sounds like the, the, the small... The, the, the small incidents where it's done properly mean a lot to you they because do. there's so many there's so many mis misidentifications out there yeah exactly so, but i'm sorry you have to suffer the the affronts to yeah yeah that's what it's like here right now, now <laughs> look um you know so uh, i'm 59 so i'm speaking to folks who are you know if you if you're not in your 20s or like early 30s you know you didn't grow up with the, the plethora of pronouns that we have now. Uh, so, you know, at 59, I grew up, you know, obviously more traditional, um, but it's 2021. So, you know, if you want to be online, your forms have to adapt. If you want to, if you want to interact in society, you know, I mean, if you want to just talk to your family, then you don't have to, I guess you don't have to adapt, but if you'd like to go outside your family, yeah, uh, assuming you don't have any trans folks in your family, you know, you might, but let's assume you don't. You know, if you want to stay insular for the rest of your life, then then you could live your little in your little bubble. But if you want to be <laughs> part of functioning society in 2021, yeah, you're, you know, at 59 years old, I'm here to tell you that you have to adapt. Things yeah. are different. You know, just like yeah. they were different from the 40s to the 60s, uh, things mm -hmm. are different from the the noughts to the 2020 the 2020s. So yeah, get on board. All right. So that's yeah. what we're going to talk about. All right. <laughs> that's all. So for my my uh, age peers, yeah, <laughs> jump on. All right. It's not so bad. It's not, it's not bad at all. You know, it's just, you, it's, we're good. Part of a, it's good change. We're part of a national community, a worldwide community. So be part of it or stay in your little home and stay in your little zip code. If you like, you know? Yeah. All right. Um, and there's probably trans folks in your zip code anyway. So, you know, you're not, there definitely are any bubble, zip code. <laughs> your little bubble is not as safe as you might think. All right. There's uh -huh. my, uh, my uh, imploring my, my, uh, my peers to come aboard. So, all right. Um, well, since you mentioned best practices, you know, we're going to talk about when to collect and not to collect. We still got plenty of time. So, but yeah. talk, let's, let's talk about some of those best practices about, you know, if you are going to collect it and I guess you could bleed into, you know, whether to collect or not, you know, what's your advice? 
Sure. So if you are going to collect it again, I see two main justifications for collecting gender specifically. One, you're accepting submissions and you want to ensure equity. Two, you want to do some kind of survey. So maybe you're survey you're surveying your donors or potential donors about all kinds of things. Maybe you're sur- surveying them about your programming and whatever else. And you also want to know about them demographically. That's really, really fair. Um, and especially in certain nonprofit industries, um, in industries that are that are centered around uh, progressive movement or equity. Um, in the former case uh, with with submissions, um, the, a pretty standard practice is to use uh, values for female, male, non-binary, prefer not to say, and uh, not listed or prefer to, to self-identify. Um, and uh, that last one is really important because um, people can identify all kinds of ways. It's also becoming more and more of a, of a recognized best practice not to use the term other there um, because it literally others people, uh, but to say, you know, right, you know, self-identify or not listed. Should you should you give folks if, if, if they're choosing uh, um, not listed? Should you give them a chance to fill yes. in that narrative or just? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. That should always come with a write-in field. Um, every, every gender field should come with a write-in field. And in fact, the absolute best practice for, as far as I'm concerned, for, for um, ensuring equity and submission is to just make it a write-in field. Like forget about the pick list values, but let people write in what they want. Where, where organizations will sometimes run into issues perceived or real with that is if they have lots and lots and lots of submissions and they want to be able to sort and filter things. Um, so right. that's right. where the justification for, for a pick list um, um, can come in. Otherwise there has to be some manual intervention because somebody might do MR period, which is going to be different than MR, which is going to be different than, mm-hmm. and, and folks might spell something out that the, 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 the organization wants to abbreviate standardly. Yeah. So, all right. Things like that. So that's for submissions for surveying for really trying. Let's go back for a sec. You know, in the in the pick list versus straight narrative. You know, uh, where where the pick list might be appropriate is like people organizations getting thousands of submissions a month or something. Mm -hmm. You know, huge organizations where it's going to be burdensome to look at each one and put something in specific. You know, to to that feel for each one. But if you're getting you know like ten. 10 or 15 or maybe even a hundred donations a month or, or submissions of whatever type submissions, yeah. donations, submissions, you know, you can, you can do that. You can, yeah, you can do it right in the field, you know, in an hour, somebody can go through a hundred of them. I mean, it's, yeah. Right. So, <laughs> you know, we're not uh, the Cleveland clinic where we're getting 10,000 donations <laughs> a month or something. All right. So yeah. let's, you know, be, be, uh, be, be open-minded there in terms of what you're mm-hmm. what, how you can accept the, the data. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. Ahead, yeah. Sure. So, so we've talked about submissions and then there's surveying. So in surveying, it's really useful to get as comprehensive as you can data on gender. And so there are a lot of gender fields that you can in- include on a, on a survey field. And another reason why I point this out is that um, people in general, if they're trying to just get the thing done, like they just want to donate, they just want to do their submission, um, then, uh, then you don't want to make your form... Actually, you know what? I'm going to modify that. 
with donation forms, it's definitely a best practice to make them as short as possible and to, to ask for and certainly to require as few fields as possible. For submission forms, you can be a lot more flexible with that because the person really wants to submit their thing, right? <laughs> They're probably going to be willing to go through a few pages of questions in order to get their thing. Surveys, also, if people enter into a survey, you know, they've opted into taking a survey, you can reasonably take, you know, a few minutes of their time and give them some pretty comprehensive questions and give them some comprehensive options for, for answers. So for gender fields there, um, it's, it's an increasingly uh, recommended practice to have a lot of different gender, uh, gender identifiers, gender terms that people can multi, multi-select. And then as always, because you know, why not? <laughs> it's really important to, to, and to include a write-in field um, because you cannot always be certain that you are covering every term and also because language evolves. So um, in addition to a write-in field, there are a lot of terms that people use for their gender. So male, female um, are sometimes sort of associated with sex identification, but some people also may say that my gender is male or my gender is female, man and woman, certainly um, cis man, cis woman, the term cis, which for people who are unfamiliar means not trans, somebody who identifies as the same gender as, uh, as they were assigned at birth. Um, and uh, so cis trans, uh, trans masculine, trans feminine, there are a lot of terms that you can find with a really easy Google. Um, and for all that, I <laughs> I don't know how much I want to plug Facebook here. <laughs> uh-huh. um, but uh, so, you know what, I won't. But, um, but there are a lot of organizations and a lot of companies that have gotten on board with offering a lot of different gender options. And you can pretty easily find comprehensive lists of gender uh, terms and gender identities. Then again, can't you just uh, simplify this by having it strictly narrative? You can, um, but then again, the analysis part comes in. All right, you have to. So you have, you have yeah, to look at it manually. Yeah, right. exactly. Well, yeah, so if you know how many, I mean, are you are you getting it? Well, all right. Yeah, if you're getting a thousand yeah. surveys, a thousand I could see burdensome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So okay. if you want, for example, to see like within certain zip codes what is the gender breakdown of our audience um, or our base, right? So, you know, in these areas where we're doing certain kinds of work, we actually have a pretty significant trans population who is, who is paying attention, who we have contact with. You know, over in this area, um, there's a significant uh, population of cisgender women who are really interested in our work. Um, and so if you want to be able to kind of um, do analyses like that, it is helpful to have uh, predefined terms, but you do want to make sure that you have a lot of comprehensive ones. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, anything else be- best practice wise? Um, pronoun fields or do, is this the place where we can get into pronoun fields? Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. So one kind of uh, under uh, well, in certain places, under-discussed. Uh, Do I seem that structured that like I'm not going to allow a pronoun discussion at this point? But we, if we wait, if we wait two and a half minutes, then we can talk about pronouns in in in, to, to my, in six I minutes. Come, I hope I, yeah, I hope I don't come across that way. No. Okay. no. Yeah. Um, but yeah, pronouns are really important. They're more important in a lot of situations than any of this other stuff. 
um, because pronouns is how people are addressed. It's as important as people's names. So anywhere where you would want to know, you know, you're going to be addressing somebody by their name, you also want to know their pronoun. Um, and there are a variety of ways that you can create opportunities to learn people's pronouns. So if it's, uh, if it's having to do with an event, um, you can ask for pronouns on the, uh, on the event registration form. If you're going to have the ability to say like in a world where we have in real life events, again, if you, if you're going to make people badges or things like that, uh, you can also ask it like when people arrive at an event, uh, when they log on to a virtual event, um, in uh, platforms like Zoom and other video uh, plat- video conferencing platforms, uh, people can add their pronouns in their name. You can request that they do it. You can model it by doing it yourself. And, uh, and you also, in, in live event settings, can, again, uh, offer things like, like badges. Um, it's also really, it's also very possible, and sometimes people f- feel uncomfortable about this or don't know how to do it, but to ask for people's pronouns in, in real life, just in a conversation. And I think that the easiest way to do that is to offer yours first. So to approach someone and say, oh, hi, by the way, my pronouns are they, them, what are your pronouns? Um, and it models the behavior. It makes it into, you know, this is a thing that we're doing together rather than sort of like, um, what pronouns do you use, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, these are my pronouns, what are your pronouns? Um, and uh, yeah, there are a lot of opportunities to do that in a group setting, doing a go around at the beginning and asking people to introduce themselves with their names and their pronouns. Um, these are all things that people can do. Okay. Right. And it becomes no harder to remember than people's names. So exactly. You know, yeah. If you slip up on a name, you know, you might slip up on a name. If there's 20 people in a group, you're not going to remember all 20 names if there's no badges. So, yeah. so if you slip on a pronoun, you say, oh, sorry. Oh, I, I thought exactly. it was you. Oh, sorry. I thought it was her. You know, you know, whatever. It's, yeah. No, and you know, and you and there are millions of names. <laughs> there are millions of names and only a handful of, of of commonly used pronouns in each language. So you know what? You really can do it. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yes. But if you make a mistake, right? I mean, it's not you know. Yeah. Don't crucify yourself. Just oh, sorry. yeah. Oh, oh, sorry. Exactly. I, I actually recommend really short scripts for if people make a mistake. So if you make a mistake in front of the person you're talking about, you can say, oh, I'm sorry. Thank you for reminding me. And then you use their, their correct pronoun going forward. If it's in, you know, if they're not there and someone informs you, oh, that person actually uses he, him pronouns. You can say, oh, thank you for letting me know. And you use he, him pronouns going forward. Right. Um, you thank the person for letting you know they've gone out of their way to do it they might be kind of sticking their neck out to point that out it's it can be mm-hmm. uncomfortable so you thank them for doing it if the person who you misgendered is right there you say i'm sorry and then you you move on you don't have to grovel you don't have to you know suddenly make them the center of attention you don't have to make yourself the center of attention just apologize thank them and move on very practical this is becoming sort of a a 101 on uh, yeah correct <laughs> <clears throat> excuse me, correct, not only pronoun usage, but, you know, addressing the trans community appropriately. Yeah. So, um, all right, we have, we have a couple minutes left. What do you want to leave folks with, Jude? Wrap us up. Um, sure. Well, I have, a, I have an anecdote where I had like a uniquely pleasant experience. Um, oh, good. With a so camp- you ended with a crummy, you started with a crummy experience. So end with yeah. a, a, end upbeat. Oh, excellent. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So I was, I was talking to a canvasser who was helping me fill out a donation form on a tablet. And that person was actually filling out the form and asking me the questions. And they said, oh, by the way, we have an optional um, salutation field and we have 
mix available mx which is the the gender neutral salutation would you would you like to enter a salutation and no one had said anything like that to me before just like asked would you like to and said we have a gender neutral one available and it just it made my day it was no effort whatsoever on yeah. that organization's part it took 2 seconds and i transform like transforming an experience from a negative one where they're not going to get my donation into a positive one where they get my donation and i feel really positively about that organization is no effort there's no reason not to do it that's perfect let's let's uh, let's leave it there great shimer CRM manager at the Center for Popular Democracy. Thank you very much, Jude. Thanks. Sure. Thank you. My pleasure. And thank you for being with Tony Martinetti nonprofit radio coverage of 21NTC, the 2021 Nonprofit Technology Conference, where we're sponsored by Turn2 Communications, turn-2.co. It's time for a break. Turn2 Communications. Relationships. Turn 2 has them, with places like the Chronicle of Philanthropy, CBS Market Watch, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. Turn 2's clients get placements because of their relationships. So when there's a reason for you to be in the news, or you need to be in the news for your own reason, Turn 2 can leverage these relationships on your behalf. You're more likely to get coverage that way than you are calling them up cold on your own. So use the relationships that Turn2 has to your benefit. Turn-2.co. It's time for Tony's Take 2. How are you doing? A few folks got back to me, but uh, I'm curious to see if there's more. And I did hear from some insiders as well. Again, the those, of, uh, those folks who get the weekly insider alerts telling who the guests are each week. So how are you? Anything you want to share about your uh, experience through the pandemic? Vaccine? Have you gotten one? Your family? Was there any sickness in your family? How's it looking planning to go back to the office? Are you planning that yet? Is your office planning it? Are they planning it without you? <laughs> Do you know? Maybe, maybe they're planning it without you and you don't know. In that case, you won't be able to bring that up to me. But if they're planning it and you do know, and you're included, how's it feeling? So I'm interested in how you are as we uh, begin to see the end of this, although fourth surge seems uh, likely. Plus, the pleasantries got to go out, right? The podcast pleasantries. I'm still enjoying sending these out to you. So I am grateful that you are with Nonprofit Radio, and I'm gratified that Nonprofit Radio is helping you in your work. That's why I do the show. So, pleasantries to you, all of our podcast listeners, each of you individually and then collectively as well. Pleasantries to you. That is Tony's Take Two. We've got buku buttloads more time for nonprofit radio. Here is ethical representation in your communications. Welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio coverage of 21NTC, the 2021 Nonprofit Technology Conference. We're sponsored at 21NTC by Turn2 Communications, turn-2.co. 
With me now is Calliope Glaros. She is principal at Philanthropy Without Borders. Calliope, welcome. Thank you, Tony. I'm so excited to be here. It's a pleasure. Pleasure to have you. I'm glad you're part of 21NTC and our coverage. Your topic is uh, From Exploitation to Empathy, Ethical Representation in Fundraising Communications. This is a concern. Um, what, uh, what do you feel nonprofits are not getting quite right around authentically representing people and, and issues? Yeah, well, you know, this is a big topic right now, Tony, and there's a lot of people who are talking about it, but I think my approach is a little bit different. For me, it's not about making cosmetic changes to the images, uh, you know, just showing happy faces instead of sad faces. And it's also not about sort of superficial changes to language, like replacing some words over others. I really approach this topic from the lens that what happens behind the scenes in your storytelling process is just as important as what the audience sees. And so this isn't about making tweaks to the final narrative. Um, it's really about working in collaboration with your story contributors to truly understand how they want their stories told. So it's very okay. much about process, not product. Process. Okay. So we've, we could have better processes uh, back end to alleviate appearance problems and, and messaging problems that are, that are going, that are going public. Right. I think it's a fundamental mindset shift. And so, uh, you know, we know that our industry has this issue with representation. We know that a lot of people who work in fundraising and marketing departments um, have never, you know, personally experienced uh, hunger or housing instability or displacement or war, but they're telling stories about people who have. And so, you know, some of the sort of, I guess, like common sense out there is to think about, you know, how would I want my story told? Um, but I don't really represent some of the people that I'm necessarily writing about. And so it's this fundamental shift from, you know, not really centering ourselves and our own lived experience uh, in the stories that we're telling and really turning towards, um, towards our contributors and looking for guidance from them in how we tell their stories. Okay. And by contributors, you're thinking of, of who? The actual people that are interviewed by the nonprofit whose stories you're sharing, if you're writing about specific people, or also the people who are just in your programs. Maybe you don't tell stories about a particular individual or you use like a, a non-identifying case example, um, but who are the people who are being impacted by your work, who, who are actually um, you know, impacted by your mission? Going to them and working in collaboration with them and really um, using their insight to guide how you make decisions, what kinds of stories you're telling, um, how you're talking about the issue, because they're the ones who are actually experiencing it. So is it about the questions that you ask them to elicit their story? That's a big help part. Us, That's a big yeah, part of us, it. Help us have yeah. the, right, the right communication with the folks that, that are contributing. Right. So I think the very first thing that an organization has to do is to get feedback about their communications from the people in their programs. And so um, uh, it's, it's not, just, not just interviewing them to get their stories, but actually going back and, and showing some of the communications that you've released and saying, what do you think about this? How mm -hmm. satisfied are you with your portrayal? What would you like to see, right? So even more open-ended questions, not just about, you know, did you like this? You know, how, how did you feel it, you know, it represented you, but what else would you like to see from us? 
right? So get it. So that so get feedback is, is the first step. But also, you know, if you really want to make an impact on your storytelling process, you have to almost create like I call it a feedback channel. It's not just about going in once and getting some feedback and you know putting it in a little report and and then it sits there. Um, but but having a continuous process of of working and collaboration with your contributors. So every time you're getting stories, you're also getting feedback, and you can continue to um, refine your stories in an ongoing way. That's really the first step. Okay. Okay. So getting feedback from about the portrayals from the folks who are being portrayed. Yes. Uh, Okay. Interesting. So, so that means including those folks on your, in your communications. If you're, if you want to make this a regular process, you're saying not just going one time, but a regular, have a regular feedback mechanism. So start bringing uh, adding folks who are the beneficiaries of your work to your e-newsletter, for instance. I think that ultimately, um, you know, every organization should look at increasing, you know, in long-term increasing the representation of staff that they have who are responsible for communications. Those folks should, you know, be from those communities and should share some lived experiences and identities with the people who are impacted by that program. I think that's the long-term strategy. I know that, you know, it's not going to change overnight. And so I think in the interim, it's really about um, both a mindset shift and also creating some different processes. So I'll I'll give you some more concrete examples, Tony. So get feedback, but also um, a big mistake that a lot of nonprofits make is they view this concept of consent, right? Get, you know, and we have this in journalism too, right? You know, getting consent to tell someone's story. They view this concept as a form. You know, it's a one-page form that somebody signs that says, I give permission for you to, you know, share my stories and my images, you know, in, in all of your platforms. And then it, and then it's done. And, you know, that's, that's not really, I think, the most effective process that we could have. We need to view consent a bit more holistically. So for instance, um, you know, how how are we getting people how are we getting the stories to come to us right and so instead of necessarily going up to someone you know in the program and saying hey can we interview you or you know hey can we have you um speak at our next event you know how are we allowing people to opt in if that's possible depending on the structure of your organization and your work so are we allowing our story contributors to sort of self select into the process to sort of say, you know raise their hands so to speak and say hey i would like to be interviewed actually instead of us um, asking them because, you know, there's power dynamics. And sometimes people might feel like saying yes, when they really, when, you know, when they really don't want to do something, but because you ask, they feel, you know, that they have to say, okay, yes. so make it, you're suggesting make it more an open question to, to, to the group at large. Yeah, if it's and, possible, and then let them and ask you saying, you know, and then asking for volunteers to, instead of going individually to a family or a, or a, or a person and saying, can we tell your story? Right, right. Let them volunteer, let them self-select, okay. make, you know, make the option available. Yeah. Right. A- another way consent can show up is even in, um, so the, the way stories work is you have an acquisition process where you go out and get the story. You're actually interviewing people, you're taking their photos. And then, you know, on the back end inside a nonprofit, the stories go through this kind of interpretation process, right? You have, you know, the recorded interview or the notes you've taken, you've got all of these photos, and now you have to put that content into a newsletter or put it into a campaign, right? How are we involving our story contributors in that process? Are we letting them look at their story once we've edited it and put it into the campaign or the newsletter? Are we showing it to them and letting them make edits before we send it out, before it goes live? 
you know, are we going back to them and saying, hey, here's what we've, here's what we ended up writing. Here's what we're going to post. What do you think? Are there any changes you'd like to make? How does this look to you? So are we involving them in that editing process? Is that, is that not common, you think? Um, it's not common, no. I would have I would have thought that that's the same process that folks use with their donors when they're doing a donor. So I do fundraising. So I'm more on the donor side that I'm not right. on the, 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 recip- the beneficiary side. But with donor, when, when fundraisers are doing donor testimonials, there's lots of back and forth. You it's know, not the same. You know, it's- no, it isn't. And, you know, you've really hit on, I think, a fundamental issue in this industry is that the way I define exploitation in my talk is that it means that we're treating some groups better than others. And in the nonprofit space, we definitely treat our donors better than we treat um, our story contributors or our program participants. And so even if we think about this notion of consent, the way consent looks with donors is totally different than story contributors. So as I was saying, um, you know, many organizations have this kind of one page, you know, media consent form. And there are, there are forms that actually say your consent is irrevocable. Once you sign this, we can use your image and story however we'd like, and you can't do anything about it. But that's not how we treat our donors, right? You know, if our donors sign up for a newsletter and then they decide to opt out later, they can opt out at any time. You know, if they decide, you know, maybe they they're they don't mark their gift as anonymous, and so we, you know, we, we kind of release things, and then they say, oh, actually, I don't want that kind of recognition. Please, you know, um, don't put don't add me to your annual report. Please make it anonymous. You know, we let our donors kind of opt in and opt out, mm-hmm. and and we give them all kinds of controls and consent. But with our story contributors, nope, your consent is irrevocable. You know, that's what I. Really want to change, right? And I think that's the last part of thinking about consent as a process. There's opting in, you know, if possible, in the story acquisition process. There's involving them in the interpretation, like you said, with donors having back and forth. And then at the end, you know, if years go by and we're still using their face, you know, on the on the as the hero image on our website, and they say, you know, I don't want to be on your website anymore. Why on earth can't we take that image down, right? Why does someone's consent have to be irrevocable? So you really nailed it, Tony. The way that we engage our donors and the control that we give our donors um, has not been the way that we've treated our our program participants and our story contributors. Yeah. All right. Interesting. As I said, I'm only aware of the the way it works on the donor side. And I would have thought that it was equivalent on the beneficiary uh, providing side. All right. All right. Um, what else? What else do you want to talk about? Uh, not that we're we're not we're not near the end, but uh, I feel like you know you've been studying this and thinking about it for years, and I'm coming to it after just. I mean, I've had another conversation with Amy Sample Ward about uh, specifically about poverty porn and avoiding that avoiding that. Um, but that was more about images, and you're I you know of course you know we're talking more about process. So. You think about this more than I do, basically yeah. what I'm trying to say. So what 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 more what what do you want us to know? Right. So there's I think a couple a couple main points. Um in the title of my talk, it goes from from um exploitation to empathy. And so I view empathy as being on the other end of the spectrum of exploitation. But I think that this word is misunderstood in our industry. We hear it all the time. And um I think it's misunderstood. And so I spend a little time talking about what empathy actually is. I think a lot of people 
think that it, when you have empathy with another person, it means that you are feeling exactly what they're feeling. But then my question is, how do you know what someone else is feeling, right? And what if you have very different lived experiences? I, I'm sure um, you and many of our listeners, you know, can think of a time where you're sharing an experience with someone and they responded with like, oh, I know exactly how you feel, you know, when this happened to me. And then they describe something that was not at all <laughs> what you experienced. And and you're going like, no, no, that's that, that's not it at all. Um, you know, or they, they blow it out of pro- proportion and think like, oh, that's happening to you. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, you must be devastated. And you're going, no, no, I'm not, right? People, you know, are they projecting how they would feel if they experienced what you experienced? It's, it's not what you would feel. And so the way that I approach empathy, you know, in, in this topic and how it's related to storytelling actually comes from the work of sociologist Milton Bennett, who distinguished between sympathy and empathy by saying that sympathy assumes similarity. When we're embodying sympathy, we're practicing the golden rule. We're treating other people the way we want to be treated because we assume that they are similar to us. And in empathy, we treat other people the way they want to be treated because we assume they're different from us. And as I was saying earlier, we really need to be assuming difference instead of similarity because the lived experiences and the identities of the people who are responsible for telling the stories, fundraising and marketing staff in the nonprofit um, are is oftentimes very different from the lived experiences of the people that they're telling stories about. Um, and so, you know, there's advice out there that I refute, which is, you know, thinking about how would I want my story told? How would I feel if this story was about me? And, um, moving that that's really more embodying sympathy. And so moving from sympathy to empathy requires that we ask better questions. Um, Those questions could look like, you know, how would I feel if I was telling this story and the person that it's about was sitting right next to me? Or, you know, if I was talking to a donor about this story and, you know, one of our clients walked into the room suddenly is there anything about the story that I would change, right? Do I tell, do I tell stories differently to donors than, than, you know, when a client is present versus when they're not Um, in those hypothetical situations, we're still, we're still us. We're not projecting our experience onto someone else. And and so those are the better questions um, that we could ask. And that's, you know, there are so many ways that I think in the nonprofit sector and in storytelling, we embody these sympathetic responses and we assume similarity and we assume that our experience is universal and we're some kind of a a baseline and really um, it's not the case. So I think that's one main point. That's almost from, uh, like we could say from, uh, from narcissism to empathy. Right, right. The way I experience something must be the way you experienced it. Or, right. or the way I feel about what you're describing, because I've never experienced it personally, the way I feel about what, you're, what, you're, what your situation is must be the way you are feeling about it. Exactly. Because, because you know, because I'm the center of the universe. So naturally, my feelings are, are the same as yours. Yours would be the same as mine. You, you, you know. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a projection. And I think it that it's, at the, it's right. at the pitfall. Projection. It's a, you know, we, we all have like interpersonal examples of conversations we've had. And the reason I I bring it up and that I I go to the trouble of defining it is because I think that that basic perception um, is what is at the pitfall of all of the mistakes that we make um, in mass communications and in the way that we represent other people. Um, You know, it's kind of using ourselves as a baseline and not really thinking about sort of the differences in our lived experience. Um, So, so that, so that's one thing. All right. Uh, uh, so yeah, distinguishing between uh, exploitation and sympathy and empathy. And empathy. Um, and well, your point, you know, about gauging, get, 
asking feedback. I mean, just how does this story look to you? Right. You know, we, we don't know how other people want to be treated unless they tell us. Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing. So if we're just guessing, right. yeah, so if we're just them. guessing, yeah. it's still a yeah. projection. Um, you know, and I think the other thing that was, was really important in my session is I think the way that people think about ethical storytelling and moving beyond this kind of narrow scope. And so I think originally our concept of ethical storytelling was informed by journalism, which is really looking at a policy of do no harm. So it's make sure you get consent, um, make sure that you're not, you know, traumatizing the story contributor, um, respect people's privacy and boundaries, you know, when you're interviewing them. But in nonprofit fundraising storytelling, this kind of do no harm is really our baseline. You know, that's the least we could be doing in ethical storytelling. I think to go up another level, we need to be adding value. We need to be providing value to the story contributor. And that doesn't necessarily just mean, um, you know, paying them a, a monetary stipend. That is a, a good process for some organizations. It works for some, but not all. Um, but how are we making this an enriching experience? How are we making, um, giving them a platform to to share their story and experience in a way that um, that feels positive and makes them want to do it again, that it was a good experience for them, right? So how are we providing value? Um, and then really the layer above that, I think what we ultimately need to be aiming for in ethical storytelling is changing the beliefs and behaviors of our audience. And so we know that there are massive inequities in the world and those inequities are are influencing our work. They're influencing our program participants and you know, these are large systemic issues, but they're maintained and held into place by certain beliefs and behaviors. And how are our stories changing those beliefs and behaviors? How are we pushing back against unhelpful narratives that say it's okay to treat some people better than others? That's what we really need to be aiming for. What's your opinion of giving folks the option to just tell their own story? Maybe, you know, turn the camera on themselves and just tell their story as they, as, as they want to, is, is that, yeah, I think it's in their own words. I would think yes. that would be valuable. Advantageous. I, I, I think that the closer that we can get to honoring that sort of authenticity um, and the autonomy of our story contributors. So yeah, letting, letting them speak in their, in their own words, tell their story in their own manner, the closer we can get to that the better. Um, I also know that you can't fit everything into a tweet and you can't fit everything onto a, a one or two page campaign letter. And so I know that there's uh, platforms and opportunities that are, are great just for really authentic sharing. And then there's some that we do have to, um, you know, interpret for our audience. So. Yeah. All right. I mean, it could be the, it could be the person's personal narrative with, you know, with context. Right? I exactly, mean, exactly. You know, right. I mean, there is a purpose behind these two. We are trying to, we, we are using these stories to raise money. So, I mean, they have, you know, we're not just trying to create an archive. Uh, we're not creating, a, writing a documentary where, where this is market driven, market driven content, but yep. the person could use their own words and then, and we fill in with lots of context. Yeah, I think that was some advice that I gave in my talk as well, is really trying to stay, give the story contributor autonomy as much as you can and let them use their own words uh, and let them, you know, tell the story the way that they want. 
And, and of course, you know, there are shifts that we, that, you know, there are different things that we could do in our interview processes. There are shifts that we can make into the kinds of questions uh, that we ask, um, but it really should be about giving more um, a, autonomy uh, to the story contributor and honoring their authenticity. Your session description mentions five actions to tell more ethical and equitable stories. Are those yeah. things we can talk about in uh, five minutes or so? <laughs> they, they sure can. And so I okay. think one of them we already touched on, which was um, to create or fix your feedback channel, right? To make sure you're getting feedback. And if you're already getting feedback, make sure that it's done in a consistent way um, and that it's mm -hmm. specific. And I would also say to the, the um, listeners, you know, consider having kind of like a control and a test group. And so, you know, there's power dynamics at play, right? And when we go to some of the people in our programs and ask for feedback because they're receiving services from our organizations, those people may be inclined to tell us what we want to hear. Um, and so I get a lot of questions about addressing power dynamics. And there's there's not a, necessarily a lot we can do about um, about those dynamics, but I would also not just ask people who are you know in your programs who are receiving services from your organization, but also ask people either within the community or people who embody some of the identities or lived experiences of those people, but they're not getting services, and and see what they think about your communications. Um, if everyone in your programs is saying, "Oh, these look great," you're you know great job, and then other members of the community are going, "No, these are so stereotypical." You know, these are you know these are really um, this isn't representative, right? That's some interesting data, and so don't just ask people in your programs, but ask people outside of your programs. Okay. Um, feedback. I think, All right. Yeah. Feedback. Right. And I, you know, point two is view consent as a process, not just a form, right? First take consent. a look right. at your form and make sure you're not saying, you know, that, that their consent is irrevocable because it really isn't. Mm -hmm. um, you know, look at ways that you can um, incorporate consent into your entire process from the moment you're getting the story, the editing and interpreting it's going through. And then even long after it's used, you know, can someone ask for things to be taken down? Okay. Um, I, I think, you know, number three gets at that last point that I made around ethical storytelling, you know, sort of beyond the baseline, really changing beliefs and behaviors. Um, I really encourage everyone to push back against harmful or unhelpful narratives. And so what are the assumptions that exist about the people in our programs, um, you know, about their situations. Are those assumptions really, are they helping us move our work forward or not? And if they're not, then how are we pushing back? Um, think about the stories that we're not telling, right? We've got all the stories we're telling, but what are, what are the stories we're not telling? Um, you know, how are our stories shaping the expectations for both our donors in terms of what is required for change? Um, you know, what, what, does, what does impact look like? What does change look like? Often our work, you know, change doesn't happen overnight. But if we're saying that to our donors, you know, you're going to transform someone's life, you know, in a day, yeah. you know, that's not really, uh, that's not really a reasonable expectation. Um, you know, and also, you know, our clients and story contributors see themselves in these stories, we're not hiding them from them. And so what kind of expectation are we setting for them, right? So pushing back against unharmful, um, unhelpful narratives, Harm narratives, and harmful and unhelpful narratives, and then really like looking at every communication and saying, is this message reinforcing those narratives or is it challenging them? Okay. The fourth piece of advice I gave um, was being the microphone and not the voice. It's kind of a proverbial, uh, it's, a, it's a metaphor. And so, you know, you, you see these communications, Tony, like we're the voice for the children. We're the voice for the poor, you know, and all of these people have voices. They, they have, they have a way of um, expressing themselves. And so you're not really speaking on their behalf, but you are providing them 
you know, a platform and amplifying their message. And so being a platform, being a microphone and not a voice means that you have to, as a, as a, a storyteller, as someone in your organization um, tasked with that, you have to analyze your own perspective. You have to be thinking about what's influencing my perspective on this, right? Um, you have to be, you know, when you start making generalizations about a group, you have to be looking at like, how do I know that? How do I know, you know, that what I'm saying is real? Where's my evidence? What am I basing this off of? Right. So understanding, you know, what kind of a microphone you are, right. Okay. And, final, you know, then the final, your final one, then we have to the final that. one. That's right. You know, we need to stay committed to changing beliefs and behaviors because it's not going to happen overnight, but we're playing the long game. And that's really what we ultimately need to be striving okay you cut out a little bit there but yes changing changing behaviors yep we need to stay committed to changing beliefs and behaviors beliefs and behaviors thank you all right all right that's a lot but that was good calliope terrific thank you thank you <laughs> thank you so much tony you're opening eyes you're raising consciousness about potential exploitation and helping us avoid it in in our in our processes thank you Calliope Glaros, Principal at Philanthropy Without Borders. Thank you very much again. Thank you. And thanks to you for being with Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio coverage of 21NTC, where we're sponsored by Turn2 Communications, turn-2.co. Next week, fun volunteer activities as 21NTC coverage continues. If you missed any part of this week's show, I beseech you, find it at TonyMartinetti.com. We're sponsored by Turn2 Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission. Turn-2.co. Our creative producer is Claire Meyerhoff. The show's social media is by Susan Chavez. Mark Silverman is our web guy. And this music is by Scott Stein. Thank you for that affirmation, Scotty. Be with me next week for Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Go out and be great, 